this summer uh, through that grant that we received to love on this community and reach out. And so uh, I'd encourage you to uh, take part in that. If you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to jump into Mark. And believe it or not, we're going to cover about one and a half chapters today. About 60 verses, so we'll see how we do. Now, uh, we're going to do some snapshots today of some things going on in the scriptures to help us tie in uh, with what uh, we have here. And so, it is that time of year, and we just finished March Madness, even though it's April, uh, the tournament just ended. But March Madness always includes something else on the airwaves. And that something else is always specials about who Jesus Christ is. Whether it's Time Magazine, Newsweek, different articles that are coming out, there's always something in our culture that explores who Jesus Christ is at this time of year. So this year, there's three major ones that are coming out. Um, One is uh, Jesus, His Life, it's called. A live-action retelling with occasional uh, commentary from different perspectives. That's on the History Channel. And then CNN is airing a special called Finding Jesus, Faith, Fact, or Forgery. Uh, And then uh, there's a thing that I just found out about called The Chosen. It's a uh, multi-season series about the life of Christ in the Gospels. And it was started with crowdfunding. And it became the largest crowdfunded show in the history. And uh, at 10.3 million so far have been given to fund this series. And um, this series, I forget who's streaming it, but uh, within that, the, the second place one was uh, $5.7 million given to restart that Mystery Science Theater 3000, where the robots sit in front and make fun of old movies. Uh, so they remade that, and that was crowdfunded. But this one beat it. And all of it, isn't it amazing, all of it is about this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. We don't see this stirring around uh, Muhammad or, or Buddha or Gandhi or other historical figures. But every year, the world wants to study and figure out who this man Jesus is. In fact, at the end of uh, the passage our kiddos read a little earlier, the the people of Jerusalem, as Jesus came in on that donkey and there all this huge parade, what was the question that began to go around that city? Who is Jesus? That was a question that kept ringing through that city. Who is Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at today and look at this question, who is Jesus? Because this is a very important picture. And this moment in history, this Palm Sunday, was preceded by nearly three years of Jesus in active ministry, giving different um, pictures and revealing more and more of his might and his mission and his purpose and his heart for people. And so as we look at this and we walk through Mark chapter 7, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss who Jesus is, and we don't want to miss out on what he's done. And so today we're going to look at... uh, Four different scenes, four different snapshots of Jesus revealing his mission and plan and who he is. And as we do that, I hope you get a fuller breadth and a picture and understanding of who Jesus is. And so, as we move into our first scene, it takes place starting in um, chapter 7, verse 24. And this is a, one of the more interesting passages of Scripture. And so, 
I want to read it to you and just have you hear it out loud. And sometimes it's just hard to picture what's going on because we don't have tone of voice. We don't get to see their faces, how they're interacting, uh, how the people around Jesus are reacting to what he says. Uh, It says this, and and from there, uh, Jesus arose and he went away into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord, But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go away. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. So what on earth is happening here? This is a pretty unique scene with Jesus. Um, He's referring to dogs and, and talking. What is this expression he's using? Is he talking down to her? This is quite interesting and uh, the first thing we need to note is they went into and out of a predominantly Jewish area into a Gentile area and we get a hint at why as Jesus wanted some time alone with his disciples to continue teaching them and yet even in this region outside uh, of where he had done ministry he was already known and so they're in in an area with uh, many Gentiles those who didn't follow the Jewish way and yet this woman came into this home and falls down at his feet. Now, uh, if you were to look up, and we're not going to dig too much there, but Matthew 15 is the parallel to this. And Matthew tells us that she went on begging for quite a bit. And even the disciples were disturbed and meant to move her out of the room. And it seems as if Jesus was even ignoring her for a bit. And then when he does turn and talk to her, what does he say? He compares her to a dog. This is, makes no sense. Um, and this is where the original language does help us. It gives us a glimpse of the tone. Um, and it wasn't a command. He wasn't speaking forcefully. But the, the word he used for, dog, for dogs there is a word that refers to a household dog or a puppy. And there's another word used for the wild dogs on the street. Um, and he didn't use that word. And so it was a kinder, softer word, and yet it was a, a phrase that had been known to refer to Gentiles. And yet she being desperate, how does she respond to this? You see, many believe Jesus was saying what the people in the room thought of her, stating it out loud, because he knew what he was about to do. He was showing her position to the people in the room, and yet she was not even moved by that. And he said, no, no, I've got to feed them first. And she said, yeah, even the crumbs. It's as if when she was coming to Jesus and she was begging him for her daughter. And I can tell you this, first thing that stuck out to me is there's nothing as strong as a praying mom. (laughs) When a mom wants something for her daughter, she is persistent. And this mom was persistent with Jesus. So I encourage you moms, and I'm thankful for the moms and the grandmothers in my life who prayed to Jesus for me on my behalf. 
And God hears and he listens. And even in his response, she wasn't deterred. It says she looked at him and, and said, so you're saying there's a chance you can help me. There's a chance. And she responds and says, if there's a chance, then I want that chance. I want that opportunity for you to heal. Just give me the crumbs and those are good enough to heal my daughter. What is Jesus doing here? He is once again showing a bigger picture of his kingdom. He's showing this. He's showing that he is indeed the great reconciler. He came, and earlier he made a statement that abolished and was showing them that eventually that all the food laws were going to be gone. Everything was declared clean. But there are all these rules set up for a Gentile to become a proselyte and to follow the Jews, but they couldn't even go into the inner part of the courts to worship. Yet Jesus here was showing that his kingdom is for everyone. Every race, every tribe, every tongue. The gospel's going to level the whole playing field. Uh, there was a time to work through Israel and to set the stage for a Messiah. But he was here, and he was moving in, and his heart has always been for all peoples. He is the great reconciler. The gospel is for everyone equally. It's interesting, you'll, you'll notice this in the gospels, that Jesus commends the faith of people. He's astonished by the disbelief of the Jews and even sometimes of the misunderstandings of the disciples, but he commends Gentiles for their faith. The centurion who comes up on the side of the road wants his son healed. Uh, Jesus heals him, and he commends him for his faith. And it's only the Gentiles who Jesus heals from a distance. The daughter was not there. He didn't stand there and cast out the demon. He said, the demon's gone now. Same with that centurion, your son's healed now. And so it shows that he has a place in his heart for them. And in a world divided, the salvation of the gospel is equally available to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel, it is Jesus Christ who is the great unifier. And as you see a country more divided or a world divided and you feel the tensions, it is only the gospel that can bring us together. Because the gospel humbles me. And when I get humbled, I realize I'm not better than anyone else. And guess what? Heaven is going to be the best multicultural, most beautiful worship service ever. So we better get used to it. And what, how much better should our church reflect that in our love and treatment of one another in our world? And so as we move into to chapter 8 from this they go and we have another feeding. Now Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And as uh, he feeds the 4,000, you would think the disciples are starting to catch on. He's walked on water. He's stopped storms. He's healed people of all these things. Demons have been cast out. They're starting to get a picture of who he is. Yeah, even in the midst of this, uh, they get confused and, and they get, uh, they lack understanding. And so Jesus looked at them in verse 17 of chapter 8 and he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke five loaves for 5,000? How many baskets uh, and broken pieces did you take up? They took up 12. And then uh, seven full of broken pieces 
is what you took up. Just with the 4,000, he said to them, do you not yet understand? It's interesting. He then moves on in verse 27, and he, he looks at them and he says, who do the people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And it is strictly charged to them to tell no one about him. And so it's interesting that they're coming to this point of they're starting to get this picture of who Jesus is, but they still don't get all of it. They still struggle with it. And what I find interesting is when the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and inspired Mark, he put a story in between these two sections. And you wonder, why on earth do we get this little healing of a man at Bethsaida? Well, I find it pretty interesting that Jesus comes up upon this blind man, and backing up to verse 22, and he looks at them, and he takes, people took him by the hand, led him out of the village, and uh, then Jesus led him out, and he spit on his eyes, and laid his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again and opened his eyes. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. That's interesting. This is one of the few miracles that you see of Jesus where uh, it takes twice, two times to get him to see. Yet there's a parallel here between this man and the disciples. They were beginning to understand. They were seeing dimly like men walking as trees who Jesus is. And Jesus told them, don't go and tell them I'm the Christ. And I believe he did that because he, they didn't understand fully what Jesus came to do. They still pictured Jesus as the one who had come in the vein of David, a superhuman leader who would overthrow Israel's enemies, regather God's people, um, and he would make Jerusalem great, have a kingdom, and establish the perfect reign of God. That was their picture. They had the title right, the Christ, the anointed one. And yet, they didn't have the full picture of what Jesus came to do. He didn't fully understand it. And Jesus here, in his next step, is going to show them who he is. Well, Peter understood, and the disciples were beginning to understand. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a priest or a king. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one we have been waiting for. But Jesus then was going to turn their world upside down. And add to their understanding, he begins in verse 31. And he says, he began to teach them privately, called them into himself. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And then here's where the shock came in. He must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By, by turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In the parallel passages, he commends Peter and says, Great job recognizing me as the Christ. You're the rock on which I'm going to build the church, pointing forward to his first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes. And yet, Peter here, in one moment he gets it right, the next moment 
He's like, no way, you can't suffer. <laughs> Jesus is like, get behind me. Do not tempt me. This is hard enough to go to the cross. Because he would be our sacrificial substitute. He didn't come to be a superstar or a superhero to get the accolades and the parade on the street. Uh, he didn't come to take over the world at that time and to overthrow the Roman rule. He came to take our place on the cross, to sacrifice himself, to substitute him in the place and the punishment all of us rightfully deserve for our sins that have broken our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so we're beginning to see, and that they had a hard time grasping it, but Jesus knew. He knew where he was headed. He knew what he needed to teach them, and that once all these things happened, it would begin to click in their minds. They'd begin to understand who he is. So then, I wonder, as we look at this, how then do we receive such a great salvation? How do we understand eternal life? How do we follow Jesus? Well, he turns to the crowds. <laughs> he, said, he calls the crowd back into him after shocking his disciples and scolding Peter. And he says, you know what? If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is interesting because we, we look at this and we hear it a little bit differently, right? Because nobody there knew he was going to be crucified. Now, they knew that the Jewish audience was surely familiar with the punishment of the Romans, the worst punishment, because it was a public punishment to be crucified on the cross. And I've always read this, and it's always stumped me being like, I get that now, and I know Jesus said many things that they understood, but now we get the full picture because we have the whole of scriptures. I wonder what the audience thought when they're like, take up our cross. We don't want to take up our cross. That's the worst thing you could do. I wonder if the disciples began to make a connection saying, he's talking about a cross. He said he was going to die. The picture is slowly coming together for them. You see, cross-bearing doesn't simply refer to an irritation in our life. And these verses aren't meant to just be reposted to judge people on Facebook. Please refrain from that. You see it all the time. But what they're talking about is a requirement, the cost. First off, the cost of Jesus' sacrifice. Good Friday is coming up. Friday is the day we remember the payment, the, the blood given for us, the pain went through. The pain and the torture upon Jesus Christ and the wrath of God poured out upon him. That's the cross. When we understand carrying the cross and following Jesus, it's this idea that we are to be sobered by these verses and realize that to walk and to follow Jesus isn't always going to be popular or easy. Just look at human history. Look at what happens to the disciples when they declare he is risen. And we're fortunate at this point in human history to be where we're at, but 
The cost of following Jesus is more than simple irritations, but it's the way of the cross. It's the way of following Jesus and sacrificing daily, putting him at the center of our lives. And the idea of the cross is doing a 180 and making Jesus Lord of your life. Going your own way, saying, I'm going to die to myself, my own choices, and I'm going to choose to seek God in everything I do. And so, that's the question the crowds had to ask. It's the question we must ask today. Is it fiction? Are we just a fan of Jesus? I mean, the crowds, so many of them were fans of Jesus. They loved what he could do for them. They wanted to have their healing. They wanted to feel better. They were fans of Jesus. They were excited about him. And yet, just a week later, at the end of that week, some of the same people would turn and yell, crucify him, crucify him. The question of who is Jesus is vital for us this morning, understanding what we believe about him. You see, the greatest gift is the gospel of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And yet, uh, that is not just something that happened in the past and that sends us to heaven in the future. We live in the here and now. The gospel impacts our present. It impacts our lives every single day. That's why Jesus says, what profit does any of us gain? We could gain the whole world, but if you forfeit your soul... It all fades. You see, this is a huge value statement made by Jesus Christ. And it ties right in with our first section. Jesus declares the incomparable worth of every human soul here. He's saying one person, one soul, one life is worth more than the entire world can ever offer. That's why they celebrate in heaven, have a joyous, raucous party over one person being saved, then over a hundred who think they've got it all together. He's saying one person matters, one soul matters. Your life is precious. You mean a lot to Jesus. He cares about you personally. He is a personal God. Even when interrupted by a woman begging at his feet who shouldn't have even been in that house, even near him culturally. And he looked down and said, your daughter is healed because of your great faith. You see, once we forfeited our share in eternity, if you turn down Jesus Christ, the moment we die, there's no more opportunity to be saved. And he knew in that generation they would go to the, many of the people in that crowd and the leaders of that generation would go to the ultimate rejection of Jesus. And it's what we do with Jesus that matters for eternity. And that's the one question that each soul must answer is, who is Jesus Christ? And we need to be humbled by this servant king who substituted himself on the cross. He took my place. He took your place. He is worthy of all our worship. And we've got to embrace this message, this gospel message. It's the most valuable truth in the entire world. It has the power to reconcile us to God, but it also has the power to change you from the inside out. It has the power to help us break through barriers culturally, 
linguistically, racially. It has the power to restore relationships that are broken. It has the power to help us overcome sins, habits, struggles, addictions. It has the power to help us become kinder, gentler, have more self-control. The gospel tears down everything, every barrier that tears apart our communities. And we want to be a place where people can come and experience real community and unity. You see, over 2,000 years ago, the people on those streets preferred a counterfeit Messiah. They were hoping for somebody who would just change everything in the here and now for them. And if you have money, and I think I've got money here, just $10, so... Right? The, the best way, many of you have heard this, right? The best way to tell if this is real or not is to study all the counterfeits, right? No. The people, the inspectors, they study it and they study the real thing. Because if you know the real thing, when something false comes along, you're going to recognize it. So even if you hold it up in the light, and I won't do it because it's kind of illegal, I think, but uh, there's a little strip in there and you can pull it out sewn within the within there there's an identity strip and Jesus was sewing in the identity of himself uh, through the gospel and even just through the picture he was giving us today so today we've seen that the gospel declares every human soul has incomparable worth and value and yet every human soul is broken and in need of a savior we've all fall short and even though we've fallen short while we're still sinners Christ died for us And when we accept that, it creates an eternal family comprised of all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. And the gospel we've seen today calls us to follow Jesus no matter what the cost and to pursue those who are lost. Are we willing to do that? You see, in just a moment, we're going to head outside and we're going to see who's come from our Facebook promos from the school and we're going to celebrate community and we're going to do that throughout the summer. And just love on people. It's not a bait and switch. We just want to love them and reach them with the gospel and have conversations. But I want us to go out there with our eyes as if the eyes of Jesus and see people in need of a Savior and to carry the gospel humbly and to show the love of God tangibly. So when we do that, lives begin to change and be transformed. And it starts with us. We're transformed as we serve others. And then God continues to reach out through us. It's amazing. He uses us weakened vessels to help people understand who he truly is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. And Lord, we don't want to get caught up in everything you can do for us that you want to and desire to do for us. We don't want it to be just about ourselves and be consumers. We want to come and we just want to lay everything at your feet and follow you. That you are worthy and allow you to change us moment by moment, day by day, shape us into the people, the men and women and children you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you for your plan and I just pray over all of us this week, whether we know Jesus have made that step of faith or not, we'd stop and consider who you are and reflect on what you did for us.
and set aside time. Don't just let Easter rush up to next Sunday, but stop and ponder as families, as individuals, who you are. Look around the world and see how your gospel is the answer that we desperately need. Thank you, Jesus, not only for coming, but being willing to suffer so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God, but we could be called your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing together.